So tonight we're going to talk about disciplining your mind. And I think this is a really important thing to think about, particularly in our culture, um, as we've grown up with modern technology, with TVs and cell phones and all these things with which uh, we're influenced. And so I think um, tonight's message is something that we, we all need to think about very seriously. Um, not necessarily any more than any of the other topics, I'm sure. Everybody that's going to talk about the discipline of prayer, the discipline of the tongue, is, is going to say, obviously, that it's very important, and, and it is, but this one is very important. So um, please join me uh, with your hearts and minds as we think about this topic. I'm just going to pray one more time to ready us all, and uh, we'll begin. Lord, thank you for this evening that we have to be able to study and, and look into your word and, and your truth, and I just pray that you would be glorified and magnified, Lord, in, in what we talk about and what we think about this evening. Lord, would you just convict us, Lord, of our, of our sin, particularly uh, within our thought life, uh, Lord, as this is going to be something uh, specifically that we consider this evening. Lord, would you open the hearts and minds of everyone here, including myself, that we would, that we would receive your word and your truth, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Disciplining the mind is perhaps one of the most important disciplines within the Christian life, especially today, as I said. Everything a person does, says, and thinks is a direct representation of what they have conditioned themselves to do up until that point of action. Whatever you say, whatever you do, and still yet whatever you think is a product of a conditioned response which has its root in the cultivation of thoughts you have been nurturing over the course of your entire life. This can be a terrifying reality if what characterizes your thought is primarily the influence of this world. Through television, computers, smartphones, tablets, music devices, and billboard ads, there can be a constant stream of ungodly influence being directed right into your mind, and it's nearly impossible to avoid. <clears throat> In a message entitled, You Are What You Think, by Pastor Brian last year, he finished his message by making the point that no Christian in the history of mankind has had to guard themselves and combat so much information that would seek to undermine biblical thinking as we do today, hence why I said it was so important. With minds already bent towards sin, the aid of the sinful thought of movie producers, music artists, marketers interested in making, and using, making money and using almost whatever image is legal to do so, disciplining your mind is similar to being in a constant state of war. It is a constant and difficult discipline, but a necessary one. Proverbs 4.23 reminds us, however, of its importance by telling us to keep our hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. In other words, guard yourself. Be diligent to discipline where you allow your heart and your mind to rest, because what you love in this world you will pursue, and you will inevitably do that which you persistently think. Do not allow your mind to become fixed on the pleasures of this world. 1 John 2.15 is clear that we ought not love the world, nor the things in the world, but rather set our minds on things above, Colossians 3.2. Jesus said not to lay up treasures in heaven, but rather in, uh, excuse me, but rather in heaven for where you're, not don't lay up treasures in heaven, that's where you should lay up treasures. Don't lay up treasures on earth, uh, but rather in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not pursue the sinful things of the flesh, but pursue God. The biblical writers encourage us to take our focus off of this world and to set 
it on the eternal glory and power of Christ. So as Christians, how can we do this most effectively? How can we discipline our minds to seek the things above and not the things below? In seeking to answer this primary question, I've broken this message into four parts, uh, each with its own intended purpose. First, we're going to examine the discipline of choices where I want you to challenge yourself to be honest about what you more normally choose and how those choices set you up for either continued success or continued failure. Second, we will talk about the mortification of sin and the vivification of Christ. That is how you can subdue sin in your life, put to death sin in your life, and exemplify or glorify Christ. And lastly, I want to make two practical points about disciplining what you allow into your mind. However, I actually want to begin with, with a story. Um, I think it, it serves a, a, a good purpose in, in being a great metaphor for what we're going to talk about this evening. And it's based on the novel. It's fictional, so you'll catch that immediately. But um, it's based on a man whose name is Dorian Gray. It's written by Oscar Wilde. Um, it's called The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's about this young man who traded his soul for immortal life and the ability to live without repercussion for his sin and, for, uh, and without the marks of his age as he would go through life. And um, he continually makes these extremely poor choices. He has this terrible friend or, well, yeah, the friend is terrible, but he continually gives him terrible advice. He says, the only way to get rid of temptation is to yield to it. Resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden itself. And so he continues along this path where he submits to sin. He continually is submitting to his sin, and he's just becoming gripped by it. And what I want to challenge you with uh, this evening is what do you choose consistently? Do you choose to succumb to the temptations of your sin. Now, obviously, that sounds particularly sensual. Um, however, maybe it's pride. Maybe it's uh, greed. Um, whatever it is that you struggle with, just think uh, within yourself this evening, what do you more normally choose? But before we, before we really dive in, I want to start with defining a few things. Within the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, there are exactly eight definitions of the word discipline. I didn't really know that. Um, but we're obviously not going to consider all eight of those. But the, the definition I have found to be most relevant and helpful for our understanding is to define discipline as training that corrects, molds, or perfects. And for the Christian, this training takes place in what I think is the realm of two pri primary areas, as I said, mortifying sin and glorifying God. Disciplining the mind for the Christian could be said to be training yourself to mortify sin and glorify God. This, however, does not come naturally, but... No matter how unfamiliar and foreign it may feel to follow the Lord against the current of our culture and our flesh, it should not be mistaken as being irrelevant. For the cost of a reprobate mind is devastating. It bridles more potential for ruin and depravity than we want rightly to admit. The heart is deceitful and wicked. This is empirically verifiable. Just look around you. Look at your own heart. Look in the world. Watch the news. You can see everything that goes on in this world. It's everywhere, the evil, the depravity. Guard what you put into your mind. It might just have devastating consequences if you neglect to do so. So I implore you to take up your cross daily and die unto yourself. Choose Christ, for you are a new creation. Your old self has passed away. 
So with that in mind, let's look at what it means to make the right choices and what it means to, to make choices with respect to disciplining your mind in the Christian life. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Discipline of Grace, I think likened in some sense the discipline of the mind with, res- with respect to growing in Christ-likeness to a constant series of choices. That is, each and every day through which we pass as believers, we're either choosing to follow God and obey his word or choosing the passions of our flesh, thus conditioning ourselves in one direction or another. Simply put, Bridges said, we can either tell the truth or lie, deal with anger or let it smolder, be absolutely honest in our finances or effectively steal, share with others in need or spend, some, spend our resources on ourselves, speak only what is helpful to others or speak unwholesome words, be kind, compassionate and forgiving or harbor bitterness, anger and resentment. Daily, we go through this constant gauntlet of choices to either put on Christ-likeness or turn back to the old sinful habits in which we once walked. And so naturally, the question for you this evening to consider, as I said, is which direction do you more normally choose? But I don't want you to just simply stop thinking what you more normally choose, but ask yourself why. Obviously, the short answer is because of our ingrained enmity against God, but that's plain, so I'm not going to elaborate on that. But is it possible that the answer, in part at least, is you continually sin because you're not really doing anything about it? If you're consistently choosing sin and falling into temptation, is it because you're always at the wrong place at the wrong time? I think that's realistically very unlikely, speaking from experience. Or is it because you are not dealing with the temptation that is constantly set in your path? Are you choosing to allow bitter and angry thoughts to take root in your mind upon which you meditate and then act out consistently in anger? If this is so, do not be fooled into thinking that every once in a while is acceptable. Don't think that. Your repetition forms habits, and those habits make your character. Try to remember it's not yourself that you live for any longer but Christ, so be no longer a slave to sin but a slave to God. And just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification, Romans 6, 19. Do not, to continue, do not continue to abide in sin and participate in that which you once walked and, and the things of the world, but choose to obey God. Every day, Bridges said, in some areas of our life, we're disciplining ourselves in one direction or another by the choices that we make. We must train in the right direction. We must train in action, word, and thought. I don't know why I flipped that page. I still got three quarters of the page to go. I'm in a zone right now. <clears throat> when Paul encouraged Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, he said, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That word train is an athletic term that communicates a kind of rigorous struggle in which he and by extension we are to engage in. Just as the athlete purposefully trains, and I know there are several of you in here, so you, and even if you're not an athlete, you know what it means to train in the direction of something, be it a musical instrument or football or whatever it is that you play or do. Uh, just as the athlete purposefully trains, exercises, and disciplines him or herself toward their goals, so too are we to discipline ourselves unto godliness. Interestingly, in 2 Peter 2.14, when Peter is describing and denunciating the false teachers, he says they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. Some versions read they're experts in greed, but nevertheless the verb Peter uses here to describe the false teacher's greediness is the same one Paul uses to encourage Timothy to train or discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. While on one hand, the false teachers 
are training themselves, conditioning themselves, disciplining themselves in the direction of sin. Paul exhorts Timothy, and again by extension us, to do just the opposite. Train unto godliness, which encapsulates the discipline of two things, which I've already mentioned, mortifying sin and vivifying Christ. We meet choices like this probably hourly. That's seriously true. Like, I, I don't have this written down, but that is seriously true. I can't, it, constantly, if I'm, as I'm driving to work, uh, somebody might cut me off, or maybe I get a flat tire, I don't know, and I become angry or something like that, or I'm tempted to become angry, and then I get to work and maybe my manager's upset with me or something like this, uh, or I see an image or something that tempts me to think in a particular way, and so I have to combat that. It's constant. It's constant that we go through this. Uh, whether we choose to, sub- uh, excuse me, I'm going to back up. We meet choices like this probably hourly as we go through life. Whether we will choose to subdue our sin and glorify Jesus or love sin and turn from Jesus. As you're driving to campus and somebody cuts you off, as I said, on the road, you have already conditioned yourself to act in one way or another. You've continually done something that's led up to that point. You've either dealt with your sin the first time you did that or you haven't. Do you lash out in anger or are you quick to forgive an offense? When someone in line for food or coffee cuts in front of you, do you allow the anger to fester in you minutes later, or do you graciously allow what, is, what was probably an accident? If you see a suggestive advertisement, do you allow your thoughts to wander, or do you immediately change the direction of your thinking, seeking to not let it gain a foothold in your mind? I could continue with numerous examples, and the reality is that many of these things probably happen multiple times a day, and we are challenged to make the choice to mortify our sin and seek to exemplify Christ or succumb to feelings of anger, thoughts of lust, feelings of envy, or whatever. Each, each time you make a decision in one direction or another, it becomes easier to continue in its path as your habits cut deeper into your character. So what do you more normally choose? Do you submit to the Lord and his word and train in godliness? Or do you succumb to the temptation to sin? I implore you, Christians, to seek Christ and not the world. For there's a great cost to, to reprobate and degenerate mind. Discipline your mind. Choose rightly. Subdue your sin and glorify the Lord. I want to come back to uh, Dorian's story. Uh, he, as he continued to make these choices that were leading him uh, down this road, he, the portrait which, which bore the marks of his soul and his sin just continually got worse. Um, he continued to succumb to the passions of his flesh, uh, as he explored the sensual experiences of both mind and body and had an increasing excitement over the lust of his flesh. And the more he knew, the more he desired to know. He had mad hungers that grew more ravenous as he fed them. It was a mold that grew in the darkness of his mind that he craved continually that which he would continually feed. At first, it brought him a kind of joy to mock the portrait of his soul that bore the marks of his sin and age, but as time passed and his wickedness grew, he began to loathe the image of his own deprivation. A quote from the book says, Upon the walls of the lonely locked room where he had spent so much of his boyhood, he had hung with his own hands the terrible portrait whose changing features showed him the real degradation of his life. And in front of it had draped the purple and gold pall as a curtain. For weeks he would not go there, would forget the hideous thing and get back his light heart, his wonderful joyousness, his passionate absorption in mere existence. He recognizes the destruction of his, of his own life, and he knows plainly that he ought not continue along this path. But he has already fallen in love with his chosen bride, his sinful passions he's chosen. 
while he knows pain awaits along this road and desire to go just a little farther and forget about his sin gives, gives him back the joy he once had, the destruction of his conscience, the eviction of God from his mind is what will allow him to continue down this road. And so I just want to ask you if, if this is you. Are you resisting the knowledge of your sin and refusing to deal, deal with it before the Lord and continuing to choose sin? Do you often know the corruption of your choices, yet choose them anyway? Don't, don't do this. For God said, do not be deceived. This is a terrifying verse, really. Do not be deceived. He is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap, the flesh, will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Galatians 6, 7 through 8. If you continue in your way and continue in your wickedness of your mind, it will eventually be your end in some way or another. I pray that you mortify the sin in your flesh and make the right choice. That is, mortify sin and glorify Christ. Given that training under Christ's likeness requires a constant series of choices between mortifying sin or giving in to temptation and exemplifying Christ or dishonoring him, how then are we to, how do we mortify sin? How do we as believers train to subdue sin in our lives and glorify Christ? We see, first of all, that putting to death the misdeeds or sinful habits of the body is a responsibility that we must take. Paul was clear in Romans 8.13 when he said, If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Conditioning ourselves or training ourselves to make the correct choices continually is imperative to mortifying the flesh. This is an active engagement of which we are a part. It is a daily dying unto the self and a series of choices to either choose sin or choose obedience. And the choices that we make continually will form the habits that condition us towards one end or another. Paul was clear about the mortification of the flesh being a duty that is ours in Colossians 3.5 when he said directly, to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. When Paul says put to death, or in some translation, consider as dead, the sinful desires that are still in us, he is referring to a conscious and deliberate effort or striving that we make to do these things. Similarly, Jesus taught that if your eye causes you to sin, that you tear it out, or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This is, of course, not meant to be taken literally, but the idea is that whatever is aiding in your sin or causing you to sin, remove it. If what you watch is encouraging your sinful thought, or if listening to a particular song invites in ungodly thoughts, it must be avoided. While on one hand, we see the emphasis on mortifying sin to be on the individual in Colossians 3, Paul also makes it clear that it can only be done with the enabling power of the Spirit in Romans 8. None of this is possible without the Spirit of God being, at first, being first at work in us, because at the root of disobedience is enmity and hostility towards God. And that internal condition cannot be cured but by a work of the Spirit. There must, however, in addition to God's initial work, in a, um, there must, however, in addition to God's initial work in us being, in us be genuine practical effort for, from ourselves not to let our sinful flesh and its desire take root in our lives. Disciplining ourselves to be in the discipline of study, the discipline of prayer, and fellowship are all necessary in our battle against the flesh. Be in the scriptures daily, that your mind may be continually transformed by God's Spirit. Be in prayer and confession with the Lord, and ask for prayer from other believers. 
Mortifying sin requires deliberate practice of taking off the unregenerate sinful self as filthy rags and putting on the new self, which is the righteousness of Christ. Paul in Ephesians 4 tells us to walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, but instead to be renewed. I skipped ahead a little bit there, but instead be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and the holiness of truth. While on one hand the renewing while on one hand, the renewing of our mind is a work only the Spirit can do through God's Word, there has to be a disciplined commitment to mortify our flesh. So let's commit to making the right choices. Let us seek to mortify sin and vivify Christ. May we choose to be doers of God's Word and not simply hearers. We must practice what we are taught by disciplining ourselves under Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Just open your Bibles to Ephesians 4. 25 through 32. I'm just going to set this down here. Look at some things that Paul says we can do. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. I always like it when Pastor Brian or somebody is, is preaching a message because if I'm like busy taking notes or doing something, he says it like four times because I like... If, if I'm not necessarily paying attention at that very moment, I, I miss it. So if I'll, I'll try to make sure that I continue to do that. That's always super helpful for me because if he only says it one time, I probably won't turn there because I, I missed it already. So Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Lay aside falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. That is, have a righteous indignation towards sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have, no, so that he will have something to share with, with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. These are each things we can continually seek to practice daily in disciplining our mind unto these things. When seeking to mortify sin and practice the truth, what do you allow yourself to feed on? Are you constantly in prayer, fellowship, and subjecting yourself to the renewing power of God's word, or are you allowing your mind to be subject to earthly desires and pleasures through television and music or whatever? Specifically, on what do you meditate? What characterizes the life of your thought? Are you refusing to allow yourself to think on impure things, or have you come to a point where refusal just seems entirely too difficult or maybe even impossible? And so, in Dorian's story... He's gotten to a point where his desires are just completely out of control. He succumbed to so much sin that his, his portrait is absolutely disgusting, and he knows that he needs to do something about it. And his friends are starting to recognize that he's, he's, been, he's been different, like, all of his guilt is coming through in their relationships. He's going and he's, he has a very weird schedule in the, as the story goes. 
And they, they know that he's doing something that he probably shouldn't be doing. And his friends start to pick up on this. And he says in the book, there are moments psychologists tell us when the passion for sin, or what the world calls sin, so dominates in nature that every fiber of the body, as every cell of the brain seems to be instinct with fearful impulses. Men and women at such moments lose the freedom of their will. They move to their terrible end as automatons move, choices taken from them, and conscience is either killed or, if it lives at all, lives but to give rebellion its fascination and disobedience its charm. He's fallen in love with these things. He's succumbed to them so many times, it's so hard for him to turn back. And this is part of what I was talking about earlier, that the discipline of your choices will set you up for either continued success or continued failure. Now, I want to say this right now. I don't want to boil the Christian life down to just making choices to subdue sin and glorify Christ. I mean, those are obviously two very important things, but it's not just this constant series of choices and then that's it. So I just want to remind us of that. But it's, it's necessary to dis- discipline ourselves to do these things. You must begin disciplining yourself to refuse and turn from sin now and not to go down this narrow road. And I, and I say narrow purposefully because if you've ever, it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty obvious analogy, but if you've driven down a wide road, it's easy to turn around. But sin, and when you continually submit to it, it becomes harder and harder and harder to stop. And that's why he said in the book he had mad hungers that grew more and more ravenous as he fed them. Now, it, Dorian's struggle was particularly sensual, but maybe for you it's pride, or maybe it's envy, or maybe it's jealousy, or a culmination of several things. But for Dorian, it was particularly lust and anger. And he'd gotten to such a point where uh, a friend of his finally confronted him, and he wanted, to, he wanted to help his friend primarily. And Dorian said that he would that he would show him this portrait that was painted of him. And so he took him to where he had, to where he had stored the portrait, which was, it was hidden in his attic. And in a fit of just anger and aggression, when his friend asked him if he wanted to pray, if he wanted to repent of the things that he'd done, his soul was laid bare before, before everybody. He, in a fit of anger, just murdered his friend. And that friend that he murdered was the same one that painted the portrait for him. Now, there is maybe deeper significant metaphors to that, but I'm not going to get into those. But he, he murders his friend. He's conditioned himself for such a period of time and chosen sin so often that it's become terribly hard to turn back around. He's so gripped by what he's been doing that for him to turn around at this point would mean confession and repentance. And imagine if you're in that situation where you've hardened yourself for so long that if you confessed, that means you'd have to admit all these things. And if, if you've lived without conscience and you've lived without the ramifications of your sin for so long, that choice could be terribly difficult to make. It's, it's already hard to make now. And we don't live in a fictional novel. But it's difficult to do. So I would implore you not to continue to go down that path. So what can we do? to refuse these thoughts, to refuse going down this road. Psalm 101.2 says, I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless things before my eyes. God's words are clear that we are to look upon nothing unwholesome, not to allow ourselves to gaze upon that which would lead our thoughts astray down a path of sin and depravity. Instead, the Christian should seek to fill and influence his or her mind with, with that which is honoring to the Lord. If you look at Philippians 4a, you can 
go ahead and turn to Philippians 4.8. We're going to look at Philippians 4.8, just so you guys know. <laughs> it's Philippians 4.8. So in Philippians 4.8, Paul says... Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there, are anything, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. It's pretty straightforward. Think on these things. If there is anything true, honorable, commendable, worthy of praise, think on these things. Don't think on those other things. Don't tempt yourself to continue going down that path. The act of refusal to set anything before our eyes and meditate only on what is true and honorable takes a deliberate, deliberate and planned effort in our culture. With destruction being only a click away, uh, people in the 21st century, 21st century, particularly young men, need to be constantly aware of what they allow themselves to watch. But perhaps it is not the sin of lust which seems to be particularly adhesive to you, but maybe anger or gossip. How can you avoid these things? How can you practically discipline yourself not to let your mind rest on these things. I think revisiting the words of Jesus would be most helpful. Remember, as we mentioned earlier, he said that if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. The idea, again, being that if something is causing you to stumble, get rid of it. It's, it's really that simple. If having internet at your home is allowing you to access to fulfill your sinful desires, get rid of it. If the folks you work with are gossiping at break or lunch or whenever, go somewhere else and not be tempted to join. If the television series you're watching is crude and inappropriate, but you laugh and take part anyway, turn it off. If the music you're listening to consistently causes you to think on unwholesome things, stop listening. It is for these things that the wrath of God is coming, so do not train your eyes to watch your ears to hear, or your mind to enjoy such things. It really is such a simple principle, but it's so important. By refusing to partake of these things and allow your mind to feed on these things, you're, pra you're practicing conditioning your mind not to partake of this sin. So be discerning about what you watch and listen to. Psalm 101 was clear. Do not set anything unwholesome before your eyes, but rather think, as Philippians 4.8 says, on things that are true and honorable. Fill your mind instead in the moments of temptation and struggle with scripture, hymns, and prayers to the Lord. The Greek word for think that Paul uses in Philippians 4.8 is legizomai. I really don't like to say Greek words because it, it's just uncomfortable because I don't always know if I'm getting them right. And they're, I don't study Greek, so it's, it's, it's kind of weird. But I'm, I'm almost certain it's pronounced legizomai from which we get the mathematical term, obviously, logarithm. Think here means a deliberate and prolonged contemplation if one, if one is weighing a mathematical problem. This is, helpful, this is helpful to understand in light of what we have just covered. Examine the thought space of your life. In other words, imagine if you, see, if you, see, if you could see everything on which you thought during the day, how would it be characterized? Would it be a constant meditation of God's, work, God's character, his word, and how you can glorify him? Or would it be on the things of the world? Colossians 3.2 says, set your minds on things above and not the things below on earth. What characterizes the thought patterns throughout your day? Just think on this on your own. What characterizes what you think about through the day? Some practical advice for giving your mind something on which to meditate, it's really quite easy. Bring God's word with you wherever you go, be it on a note card or the Bible itself to meditate on throughout the day. If you have a job where you can listen to scripture, then listen 
anything you need to do to help keep your mind off the things of the flesh and on the things of the Lord. Listen to good music. Sometimes deep meditative thought can be hard to keep, to keep up on throughout the day and playing some encouraging music that you don't necessarily need to give your undivided attention to but can still digest the point, perhaps, of what the singer is trying to make is maybe that's the best option for you. We're not always in the best frame of mind to have deep theological and meditative thought, especially when we're exercising or working. It is great to have an alternative option of good music to listen to that will more passively influence your mind instead of having to be completely focused. However, it's important to make time to read and spend time thinking deeply and thoughtfully about Christian literature. Spend some time to wrestle through books by John Owen, John Calvin, John MacArthur, John Piper, (laughs) or John Lennox, and other Johns who wrote books about theological things. And see what some of the leading theologians and pastors wrestle through intellectually. Take that with a grain of salt. Obviously, not every John in the history of writers has has written good things. Uh, Spending time to carefully groom through and seek understanding through Scripture is is always a wholesome way to spend time. So I just want to conclude with a couple points and then uh, a couple questions and then the ending of Dorian's story. But while disciplining our minds to be set on things above instead of things on earth is primarily a series of practical and disciplined choices, these choices are influenced and nurtured by what we more continually choose. Choosing consistently to mortify sin and glorify Christ will depend in large part on what we condition our minds to desire and think. If what you allow into your mind are the passions and pleasures of this world, you risk a gambit that is not worth the pleasure. I'm going to read the end of Dorian's story for you guys. It's like 200 pages, so I skipped over a lot. Obviously, I only read you like two or three things. But I think the ending is really quite powerful in the point that it tries to make. And I think we can learn something from it by doing so. As I said, he had gotten to such a point where he'd hardened himself to his sin for so long that he made this terrible decision and and murdered his friend. And he's become so guilt-ridden with with his actions that he just wants to do whatever he can do to forget about it. He says, but this murder, was it to dog him all his life? Was he always to be burdened by his past? Was he really to confess? Never. There was only one bit of evidence left against him, the picture itself. That was evidence. He would destroy it. Why had he kept it for so long? Once it had given him pleasure to watch it changing and growing old of late, he had felt no such pleasure. It had kept him awake at night. When he had been away, he had been filled with terror, lest other eyes should look upon it. It had brought melancholy across his passions. Its mere memory had marred many moments of joy. It had been like conscience to him. Yes, it had been his conscience. He would destroy it. He looked around and saw the knife that had stabbed Basil Hallward, his friend who painted the portrait for him. He had cleaned it many times, so there was no stain left upon it. It was bright and glistened. As it had killed the painter, so too it would kill the painter's work and all that that meant. It would kill the past, and when that was dead, he would be free. You can see he just wants to be free of this sin. He wants to be free of this guilt. It would kill this monstrous soul life, and without its hideous warnings, he would be at peace. He seized the thing and stabbed the picture. There was a cry heard, a crash. The cry was so horrible in its agony that frightened the servants 
in its agony that the frightened servants woke up and crept out of their rooms. Two gentlemen who were passing in the square below stopped and looked up at the great house. They walked on till they met a policeman and brought him back. The man rang the bell several times, but there was no answer. Except for a light in, in one of the top windows, the house was all dark. After a time, he went away and stood in an, in an adjoining portico and watched. Whose house is that? asked the elder of the two gentlemen. Mr. Dorian Gray, sir, answered the policeman. They looked at each other as they walked away and sneered. One of them was Sir Henry Ashton's uncle. This was somebody who is a close friend of Dorian in the story. Inside, in the servant's part of the house, the half-clad domestics were talking in low whispers to each other. Old Miss Leaf was crying and wringing her hands. Francis was as pale as death. After about a quarter of an hour, he got the coachman and one of the footmen and crept upstairs. They knocked, but there was no reply. They called out. Everything was still. Finally, after vainly trying to force the door open, they got on the roof and dropped down onto the balcony. The windows yielded easily. Their bolts were old. When they entered, they found hanging upon the wall a splendid portrait of their master as they had last seen him, in all the wonder of his exquisite youth and beauty. Lying on the floor was a dead man, an evening dress with a knife in his heart. He was withered, wrinkled, and loathsome of visage. Now, I know I skipped a, over a lot in that story, and it probably doesn't sink in um, as much as I'd like it to right now, but you understand, hopefully, the point. He destroyed his conscience. He'd evicted God from his knowledge. He'd continued down this path of sin for so long. He was so guilty of everything that he'd done. He just wanted to be rid of it. And so he destroyed his conscience, but yet it was his own death. So what I want you to think about is what do you choose consistently? What do you condition yourself to do consistently? Are you choosing sin? And it doesn't, it's not only lust and anger and these, 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 these kind of more obvious and terrible things that we think about, but maybe it's envy. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's selfishness. What do you more normally choose? There's a cost to choosing sin and following your passions. So don't do it any longer, but train unto godliness. Train your mind to set it on the things above and not on the things of the flesh. For Christ is now your Lord. Set your mind on him. I'm going to close this in prayer. Lord, thank you for this evening that we've had to study your word and, and think through uh, your truth. And I just pray for myself and the believers here that we would we would consistently choose you, Lord. Would we, would we choose to glorify you and mortify our sin and choose Christ and that we would honor him, Lord. And I just pray for strength, Lord, for everybody and, and grace as we continue in, in the regular aspect of our lives, Lord, throughout the week that we would, through the day, just every time we are encountered with one of those, those decisions to either choose you or choose engaging in sin, Lord, would we choose you? Would we condition ourselves to you, Lord? Would we condition our minds to think on you? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.